Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? How are you doing today? I'm Ray Harkins, your host of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I hope you are doing well. I am unfortunately sick. I got the flu, and that is uh, kind of what's uh, delaying this episode being released in a somewhat timely manner. Usually I try to release this stuff, you know, on Wednesday mornings, on Pacific Standard Time, of course. But um, yeah, things happen. Life gets in the way. And uh, fortunately, it's not the the stomach bug that people have been getting where they've been vomiting up everything. But this has just been like, you know, you feel like you've been hit by a bus. You can't move very well. So I'm feeling a little bit more normal, but uh, still still kind of sick. And, you know, it, it, it happens. But I could not hold on to this episode for another day because Pat Flynn, a friend of mine, even though we don't know, we've never met in person, but it's like, just view him as a friend. But uh, Pat Flynn from Have Heart, Fiddlehead, so many other great musical projects that he's been involved in. Uh, he came on the show. He's been a guest that I've been circling for a while and uh, finally we were able to make it happen. So that's exciting. And um, you, you like band merch, right? You need to go to rockabilia.com you need to use the code PCJabberJaw that will get you 10% off of your order. And then you will be uh, excited because you will then be able to get whatever it is that you want. They got hoodies, they got long sleeves, they have short sleeves, beanies, hats, whatever you possibly want, they absolutely have. Okay? You also, please, uh, thank you, Rockabilly, for the support. I just, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm in a flu fog right now, but. You also, if you don't subscribe to this show on whatever platform you use, please subscribe to the show because it will get you the new episode piped into your podcast player of choice every week. But the subscriptions are what help this show get more visibility as far as people being like, oh, this show gets recommended to you by other shows or whatever. So please do that because I know some of you maybe just, uh, you know, dive in occasionally, but but subscribe to the show. Even if you don't listen to the episode, it's, it's fine. I totally understand. You can't keep up with all of the content I'm throwing at you one hour a week, but, um, yeah, please subscribe to the show. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about my life right now because my life is in shambles because I'm sick. So and uh, that, that cough was not meant to, to get sympathy for me or anything like that. But here's Pat. This was such a great discussion. We did it, uh, one, uh, early evening, his time. And, uh, he was actually with uh, Sam from triple B who will be a guest at some point in the future. And it was a, a great chat because, uh, Pat likes to talk and I like to talk and it worked out perfectly. So here is that. And like I mentioned before, uh, you know, we were recording was the idea that, you know, I, I feel 
a, a kinship with you, even though we never have like, you know, hugged or shook hands or anything like that. But, you know, I've <laughs> watched, you know, watched Half Heart play many times. Like I think the a very distinct show I remember was in uh, Whittier, California at the Green Turtle. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Good show. It's an unbelievable show. Um, and, you know, I'm sure like as you grow older within the context of, of the hardcore scene, um, it, it, once you reach a certain age, it feels like that where it's like, okay, like, you know, whatever you're in your mid thirties, I'm in my late thirties and like, Oh yeah. Like we've already lasted this long. Like, of course we're friends, even though we haven't spoken, you know, like, does that, right <laughs> does that kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah, that, to you? That, that totally, it makes sense. You can just sit down and have a pizza and just talk it out. We're, I guess more or less lifers on the, in the same weird, very misunderstood subcultural community. So it, you know, at this point, it's like if you're still around and like the conversation is going to skate a little bit, a little bit easier than with like my uh, cousin's boyfriend or something like that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure, speaking to you know your your profession as a teacher and uh, the idea that uh, you know you interact with a lot of uh, you know what I would like to deem as civilians, where people who have no experience with our subculture, um, and then try to understand the world in which you have come from, i.e. playing in bands and, you know, straight edge. And like, I presume you have equally as entertaining of conversations as I have with people in the normal world of like, Oh, this is what straight edge is. And people like, huh? Like how, how do you, how do you kind of navigate those conversations? Yeah. Are are we, are we recording right now? Yeah, we're we're rolling. We're in it, my friend. Right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was just double checking. Um, how do I, how do I navigate those? Um, I don't, uh, you know, on, on the topic of like, Oh, you play music. Uh, I, um, I got this from, uh, um, Brendan Radigan, the singer of the rival mob. He'll usually just, he, I remember we were talking about this and he just said, Oh, I'm into the hard stuff. Um, <laughs> that's good. And th- that's usually my, 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 my go-to, uh, before I give, folks the uh the spiel the of like you know well in 1976 1977 you have the development of this uh anti-establishment music coming out of new york city like i um so uh, i i guess when on the topic of straight edge uh i don't know it's been a while like i guess uh, now that i'm in my you know promptly in my 30s i don't really have too many of those interactions, it was more so in like my mid to late twenties as I was really starting my career or when I was in grad school where people were like, Hey, come out for drinks. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just sort of like, all right, cool. And then I don't order a drink and they're like, Oh, you're not drinking tonight. And I go, Oh, well I don't drink. And they're like, Oh really? And then I would, I guess, I guess it's time and place. If I'm at dinner, then I'd be like, Oh yeah. So I might delve into a little bit of historical context to my life regarding like the history of straight edge, but my workers, it just, it just doesn't come up, I guess, in my world. Um, no one's really, and teachers aren't, at least in my, at my school, we're not really hitting each other up to, you know, go get drinks. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I think a lot of people, yeah, I, I usually just sort of, I, like I, I it, you know, in having that experience in my like late teens and twenties and thank God my like, like early twenties are over. And like, just that, I remember that, that era, it was so interesting because, you know, I grew up as a teenager thinking that like this very, having this very 
like misguided interpretation about, you know, like those who are straight edge and, and, and the mainstream world and just probably like just reading how it was back in the early eighties and then in the eighties, you know, according to the likes of like, I don't know, um, Alba Real's account of, you know, just being what it meant to be straight edge in, in Massachusetts in 1981 or something like that. And I remember reading that when I was like 14 or 15, be like, everyone hates me. And <laughs> it kind of like, wasn't the case. I remember like there was this girl in high school who like, you know, uh, like was like, Oh, like you don't drink. That's really cool. I think that that's totally awesome. And then like, I remember she like wrote me a letter saying like, you know, you being, you know, a teenager and like choosing my grade and like, it, you know, it inspired me to not like be like a wild child drinker this summer. And I remember being like, Oh, cool. And like, that's, that's not what, you know, I expected it to be like, according to like, you know, Ian McKay's like account of like, you know, straight edge in, in the early eighties. Uh, and then I got to college and like, I guess there had just been a huge change over time in terms of drinking culture in the United States. Because when I was in college, upon people finding out that I, that I don't drink or that I was actually straight edge, it was a little bit more known to your like more pedestrian, common mainstream civilian. And would always get this, like, especially at a party, if the person was already kind of drinking this like common, like, is this all right? I don't want to offend you because I'm drinking type of thing. And I remember (laughs) that being like just such an awful conversation because it was so annoying. It was all is rooted in just total insincerity in, in like insincerity and disingenuous, like, you know, dr- half drunken talk and, and like, you know, everyone's in their late teens or early twenties and they all just sort of developmentally suck anyway. And like, you get this like terrible, like, I'm sorry, does this bother you? Like, I don't want to bother you. And like this yeah. weird perception of my fragility. And I just feel like, no, doesn't bother me. Yeah, totally, totally then, cool, totally normal. <laughs> yeah, and then like as I get into my late twenties, everyone's just sort of like, oh, okay. And they, they probably in the back of their mind presume I'm an alcoholic. Or something no, like that, that that that's exactly what I I see is common for people that yeah, I have this. I'm straight as well, and I have those interactions with people, and they automatically assume one of two things: either one that yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, or two that you know I come from a family of alcoholics, which you know you understand. Yeah. People are like, okay, I get that from a normal world perspective. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. And I guess, you know, what's kind of cool and I, it's hard for me to tell like one of those, like, like situations where it's like, you know, am I, is, is the like age group that I'm like, that I've always just sort of been in, in, in my life have they grown, you know, a little bit wiser, um, or it has like society kind of like just had somewhat of a, uh, I guess slight reformation in terms of being a little bit more sensitive to those types of things where, you know, the likelihood is that, you know, this person might actually be, uh, you know, recovering alcoholic or they are, or, or like, you know, they're, they're just going through a really tough time. And it, I, I think that in my later twenties, I found people to be a little bit more sensitive and, uh, now in my early thirties, it's, it's it's just like not even a thing. Like I, it's yeah. not even a thing. Like it almost feels like I don't know. Again, I like in in my non hardcore 
like, you know, subculture world of punk that I exist in. It's, it's teachers. So we're just not really hitting each other up to go out for drinks. And, but I, I, I would imagine just considering how things have changed and, and the push for there to be just, uh, just a greater, uh, like, you know, sensitivity towards people's, uh, you know, lives in general, uh, chalk it up to like political correctness or chalk it up to, I don't know that, but like a culture just now just being maybe, maybe too afraid to offend anyone. I don't know. I I just think that it seems like there's a slightly greater awareness. Like you have one of those kind of like mock tales or something like that at bars, which is really cool. Um, I I think of like my friends who struggle with alcoholism and I'm like, you know, things are getting better because I remember, I remember like going to bars in my mid twenties, uh, or going out to eat and like, you know, the waiter would be like, like the waiter would be like, you're not drinking. Right. Okay. All right. And, and I remember like what, what my, my go-to thing was like to really just make them feel bad. And I would just say like, actually I'm a struggling alcoholic and I find what you just said to me to be incredibly offensive. I would just completely lie to them and make them feel bad. Right. And, and I, and, um, it's much really to like the, the amusement of like my, my friends, uh, and I got a kick out of it. But at the same time as someone who has family members who struggle with alcoholism, a part of me was kind of like trying to look out for them and, and hopefully get, you know, the, the, the waiter world to kind of just like, you know, Hey, think twice about like, you know, the way in which what's your throat. Yeah. You what's your know their story. Exactly. What you're throwing out there. Um, yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, taking a more, uh, you know, individualized uh, look at your life. Uh, were you? Um, th- this is me just playing armchair psychologist. Are you? Uh, are you an only child? <laughs> Am I an only child? Yeah. Do you have brothers and sisters? Oh yeah, no. I, I have an older brother and an older sister. I, I, I am the youngest. Okay. Oh, so you're you're the baby of the bunch. Um, yeah. The, uh, cause yeah, I don't know. You always, uh, I mean, just from what I, you know, have observed about you, you definitely seem like the sort of person where, um, you know, you are, you are clearly comfortable getting up in front of people. I mean, obviously through, uh, you know, practice makes perfect from that perspective, but, uh, but then you also seem like the sort of person who can, you know, totally be fine. Um, you know, just hanging out deep in a book or whatever. Um, has, yeah. have you, have you kind of, I guess, noticed that, uh, about yourself that you have that kind of, you know, both side perspective rather than leaning on one or the other? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. I, I think growing up, I was just always really attracted to, um, I remember, I, I think my, my first memory of like, um, I guess like public speech or like my likeness for public speech was, I remember in the eighties, watching Ferris Bueller and that scene where he is like on top of a float in the middle of Chicago and like just performing. I remember just being like, Oh, he's so cool. And I remember I was like four or five or something like that. And I was like in my living room and like, I just remember my parents kind of like being like, who, who is this child? And then, uh, and I just, I just, I don't know, like not that I've ever been this like huge, like social, uh, like, you know, butterfly or anything like that. But I remember the first time, uh, when I was in school, I, I got pretty good at history and, uh, giving presentations. And then when I got to high school, uh, and started really started going to shows, um, my, uh, an older friend of mine, uh, this guy, uh, 
uh, Joe Hawk. Uh, he plays in the band uh, Battle Ruins. Um, he, uh, he, he, his band at the time, Beyond Authority, he had me sing one of the songs that I really liked. And um, I, it was, I, remember, I remember there was like this massive uh, like elation coming over that I was like, I had a microphone in my hand. And I remember like being like, fairly aggressive in terms of like getting in people's faces. And like, I was 14 and, uh, um, I remember people being like, you're like super into singing and, 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 and like, you're, you're a wild man. I remember being 14 being like, Oh, cool. I think they thought I was pretty good at doing that. But, um, at the same time, I think that, uh, I'm not, I definitely don't want to play the role of like, I'm, I'm this kind of, you know, hard to understand, you know, <laughs> difficult to pick. Yeah, like I understand. Deep, like deeply thoughtful thinking man who stays in the corner and broods during the show. Uh, and I, I totally can see how like in um, like a thousand foot view reading of, uh, of me based on like some of my lyrics and uh, the, the ideas I've tried to express over the years. Um, I could see how someone would, would, would see that. And I've always been, I guess a little frustrated that like, you know, I hope people don't, don't perceive this to be like me trying to like create a character of myself as, you know, something that might not be real, but I, I do. Anyone who knows me is like, um, I, I, I have a, a, a tendency to go like super deep into it. And, um, you know, I, I when I, want to show my admiration and my love for uh, my friends, they, they'll, they'll, they'll hear it from me in, in, in usually like a long, very drawn out letter. <laughs> and uh, so like, but you know, like, but at the same time, like I, I I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty open person uh, who's, who's a little bit more interested in, in, in like having fun um, not like that's the only thing that I want to do. And I, I, I love talking politics to me. That's fun. But you know, uh, I'm not like this, like, all right, let's sit around and talk about Fellini films and, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, you know, just sort of pontificating over the, yeah. Yeah. Like I, that's not my, that's not my MO, but I, I, I love to go deep into a conversation and then to come out of it. I, digressions are, um, to me, like the joy of life. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. But I don't, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but like, yeah, I definitely like, I think there's a perception. There might be a perception of me as like this, you know, like guy shrouded in darkness, only thinking about the, the deep emotions, <laughs> life. And sure. I do, uh, but I'm, I'm not saying that like, you know, like I have a love, a deep love for um, the absurd and you know, the more stupid something is like the, the more funny I find it. Sure. Sure. No, I totally understand that. Um, and as the, uh, you know, I guess as the, uh, the baby of the bunch, uh, did, <laughs> were you, uh, kind of left to your own devices as you were, you know, figuring out how to be a kid or could you lean on your, uh, you know, older siblings to be able to, you know, show you the way in many respects? Uh, uh I, I, I was definitely, leaning on my older brother and my older sister for, I definitely trying to understand, um, music. Um, my brother wasn't like, so he was born in 1980 and, 
uh, by the time Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, you know, that, that kind of changed like the game. I remember hearing that song for the first time with my brother and like, he got his first CD player. We, we shared the same birthday and I'll, I'll never forget. Like, you know, I was with my mom's car as my father was driving home and they were on her birthday and I was going to the toy store and he was coming back from the music shop with my dad and um, he had got a CD player for his, for his birthday. And I remember he, we, as we were uh, driving by, uh, you know, my mom and dad were talking, Oh, Hey, okay, we're going here. We're going. And my dad was like, Oh, we're, we're coming back. And my brother holds up, um, never mind. And, uh, in a way that was like, this is the truth. Uh, so he was definitely like, uh, very instrumental in me finding, um, alternative music. And from there, my, my brother went pretty deep into Sonic youth and, uh, more kind of like noise, uh, more kind of, I guess, experimental. Like he got into swans, like, pretty early. I think he was like on his own, which is kind of amazing to me that he was listening to swans in, in high school, but pre-internet. Um, yeah, that's, cha- that's, went, that's challenging. Yeah. Like, and nowadays it's like, you know, I remember my, my brother saying like, this is the, the real, the most real music you can possibly listen to. And I was like, just beginning to appreciate, um, never mind. And he was like over Nirvana. He was like, yeah, yeah that's like, like and this is like 93 or four or something like that. <laughs> yeah. He's like, um, yeah, Michael, Michael Gira is God. Kurt Cobain is dead to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so anyway, like my brother was pretty advanced in that. And, uh, you know, he got into, I remember he bought damaged, uh, and I remember seeing the cover of that record around and my sister, uh, you know, uh, my, my love for like indie rock really comes from my sister. She went to France one summer for some like school trip or something. And, uh, I, I guess like, I think if you're feeling sinister, it just come out. And I guess that record, like that poster for that record was plastered all around Paris. And she just, I think by sheer, like, you know, the force of advertising felt compelled to buy it. And, if you're like an eighth grader or like a freshman in high school and you get that record and there's a tradition in your family for music to like, kind of, you know, have like this kind of Columbus complex where you like, you found it first type of type of thing. Uh, and that was definitely like, my parents are really into like, you know, into music in general, but also like not radio rock, but my sister definitely had that bug to try and like find your own identity through music. And so she discovers Belle and Sebastian in Paris, which is like the coolest way to discover <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. that band. And she's like a, fr- like I think she was eighth grade going into freshman year of high school and she brings it back. And like, you know, my brother and sister would just play their music all the time. Sometimes like competing noises. And I, I was definitely, they weren't instructing me, so to speak. They were definitely like lording over me as older and cooler. Meanwhile, like, I was, I remember like I had, like I, I was, it was like uncool that I was listening to the blue album in like 95 or 96 and be like, I really like this. And I think, you know, my sister, you know, loved Weezer, but I think she was like by that point, like over Weezer. So there was always this kind of like, um, uh, not competition, but like this, 
uh, in my realm, I was just like, I guess I'm like never going to be cool enough. Uh, <laughs> and somewhere along the way that bug, uh, came to me and, uh, um, Yola Tango's painful was like, uh, I, I dated this girl in sixth and seventh grade for like a year and a half. And I remember she broke up with me and I was so like insanely sad about it. And uh, like, I remember just like, my sister would constantly listen to it's feeling sinister and painful. And, uh, those two records were basically on repeat for me. And I just became obsessed with them. And I didn't, I don't even think I really liked the band. I was just, I just liked the songs. Like get me away. I'm dying and and Fox in the snow and big day coming. I remember just listening to the songs on repeat to, to deal with this like weird middle school fake depression that I was going through. Right, right, right. And, and then, and then somewhere along the way, like, I, I, like, I think like uh, Marilyn Manson and, and Nine Inch Nails, like were, well, Marilyn Manson was a huge thing. And, you know, I think at that time, if you really were like a real Marilyn Manson fan, you knew that you had to listen to Nine Inch Nails. And I remember getting the downward spiral and getting what I think is now like a black marketed, like, uh, video, like double VHS thing of like these, like, you know, like completely illegal to like be shown video, Nine Inch Nails videos of like just extreme S and M torture videos from like the help, help me. I'm in hell or I'm sorry, broken sessions. And I got really into that. And I was just trying to like have my own identity. And then somewhere along the lines, I found, I found hardcore and, and, it all just sort of clicked with me, but that was my way of feeling cool uh, in the way that my brother and sister definitely were like, listen, you can play sports and have a couple people at school think you're cool, but um, deep down inside, if you're listening to like X band, everyone is going to be thinking that you're cool as opposed to just like, you know, your fellow hockey players or, you know, a couple people, I just thought like, I just thought that like, Oh cool. This is a good way to like, for me to feel cool. turns out like no one thought I was cool. Uh, <laughs> but you so, thought, like, yeah, you thought it, which is important. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was what was important. And I don't, the coolness is for me is not the right word. I think it's, it, it really comes down to confidence, mm-hmm. uh, which was an army brat moved around a lot. Um, from like, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. And for me, it was really important to feel confident around, around new people mm-hmm. um, and music and, and, and subcultural really just punk in general was like my way of gaining some confidence. Yeah. Establishing that, that your own lane, so to speak. So yeah, that makes total sense in a world where everyone is confined to their homes. Society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right. 
people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the, uh, you know, the impression that I get too, uh, you know, the, the fact that you're a teacher, the fact that, you know, you come from a, uh, you know, family cause your, your father taught after he was out of the military, correct? Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, that, I, that seems like, you know, most, most people that are surrounded by teachers definitely, uh, you know, seriously consider the profession because, you know, it's, it's interesting, it's stimulating, it's attaching you to youth and all that sort of stuff. Um, were, were you interested in that before, um, you know, I guess music kind of consumed you or was that always the, uh, the, the kind of path from your perspective? Um, so history for me was like, um, long story short is like, I, I when my father, right before the, in the three years before he retired in 92, we were living right outside DC. My father was working, um, at the Pentagon. He was, uh, he was actually Colin Powell's speechwriter, which is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, we were in the Baltimore County schools. I was in Columbia, Maryland, which is actually where void and, uh, uh, like the singer of praise is from. So it's a cool, hardcore history in Columbia, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like a total typical suburban part of uh, America. And I, I wasn't learning how to read in, in the first grade. <laughs> uh, so while my father was writing like speeches for the secretary of defense, um, and it was just, a, it was in that final year, my mother was relocating, my father was retiring. And I think, you know, me being like the last, the third child, it wasn't that they didn't care about me, but they were like, Holy shit! Like this, this school is not teaching our kid how to uh, our our child how to read. So he retires in '92. We come back to Massachusetts, and uh, I remember the first day of second grade. Miss um, Brunel, the teacher, said, "Why don't we start off with uh, letting um, the new boy uh, Patrick uh, read for us?" Uh, and I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know how to fucking read, and right. everyone That's did. Terrifying. And I'm, Oh my God. I, I still remember it. Like I remember the fear and the anxiety just rolling through my veins. Like, you know, seven year olds feel that type of stuff in their own tiny context. And, um, because I was quick witted, I, I saw a picture on the page and of like two frogs fishing or something like that. So I just made up my own story. And then very quickly, my, uh, teacher was like, are you on the right page? And I was like, uh, yep. And, uh, you're like, there's, there, like, there's right. pages, there's pages. <laughs> Yeah. So she very like, you know, graciously said like, okay, why don't we let so-and-so start from the beginning? And it was very embarrassing, very mortifying. And then I spent that whole year, second grade, effectively like not going to recess. And in this, like what felt like, what feels like in hindsight, like a dungeon with uh, sister Louise. It was at a little, um, very small Catholic school that I was going to. And I really felt like I was just uh, like stupid from that point on, uh, from that day on. But I gained some confidence in in like towards the end of the year because we were having spelling bees, and I was like winning them left and right. And I just needed someone to teach me how to teach, and that was Sister Louise. But like I, I got, I gained some confidence, but I kind of never, even to this day, could let go of like, you know, this like, oh my god, like I'm stupid, and because I can't read. Um, so it wasn't until, um, 
middle school where I had the same history teacher for three years in a row, uh, Mr. Hall. He taught in a really interesting way that made it seem like history was about like, you know, it wasn't, un- it wasn't finished and what you're reading is just one, a human being, another human being's perspective. And the idea is, you know, get different perspectives and, you know, which is quite honestly what you're doing at the more graduate levels of history. Um, he was, it was a little more investigative uh, as I remember. And I got like so into it and I was, I was really good at it at the middle school level as good as you can be, but I was like really passionate about it. And because it was something, the first academic thing that I was really good at, uh, I really just sunk my teeth into it. So, um, I, I, I felt good. I felt confident and I carried that with me throughout high school. And, you know, that was what I was studying in undergrad and later in graduate school. And, uh, I, it was something along the lines of when Havart was, uh, really just doing a lot of its touring and, you know, we were meeting people in South Africa and in, in, in China and in, you know, throughout, like throughout South America. And I just remember like all the, you know, this is like after, um, undergrad, when graduating, we had the time to, I had the time to tour and I was pretty certain that I wanted to teach. Uh, but I was also wasn't sure if I wanted to go into like journalism, uh, uh, and I didn't really 100% know that I, I wanted to teach, but something about that experience of seeing the world and seeing that like all the, all the stereotypes like either taught to me in school or through like, through, you know, just like, you know, pop cultural media or, or just like, you know, friends, like they weren't measuring up and, um, you know, I, like th- that was, it was fascinating to me to get into the world of, um, like, really like, like history education, because like, you know, it was so interesting being in South Africa and hearing one person's perspective on like, you know, the second Boer Wars, like, you know, like from their perspective, it was just too fascinating. And then I, I just really remembered uh, feeling really bad for the, the seven year old me and knowing that there was a whole lot of kids who were probably like that. And when I was in high school, my, my history education was pretty bad. And I, I also lost a lot of confidence in that experience, which is why I took hardcore so seriously. Um, but I regained it in, in college, uh, because I had just had great history professors. Um, so like long story short is that I saw the world and I thought about the things that, you know, really mattered to me in, in my life up to that point until I was about 24. And I, I just knew that my, my love for history and my love for learning and my, um, appreciation for young like youth culture, um, it just sort of spelled out that um, history education was um, at the secondary level was really where I wanted to wanted to be, and I, I can't like uh, you know about five or ten years from now, I'm hope I'm more than likely going to pursue a, a PhD in, in, in history education to to teach teachers how to teach at the college level. Okay, um, but um, man, like I, I'm. I couldn't be happier with my job. Like, it's just, uh, I, I go to work every day, just actually pumped up. I'm like, you know, when I think of the shitty, uh, jobs I was, I, I had when I was like home on tour or even like, you know, like I loved touring, but, um, you know, have our broke up because that wasn't a, a lifestyle that I like we wanted to continue to pursue. And that's not knocking on the lifestyle, but like I, struggled to maintain family relationships, um, 
personal relationships. Friendships were tested more so than they needed to be. And my mind was just very much, I, I had tr- trouble like keeping my mind sharp on tour. Um, and I just, for other people, it's easy, but I can't read in the van, you know, so that just wasn't the life for me. And, um, but I loved it. I miss it all the time, but I still was like, you know, like I would kind of be like, Oh God, there's a long, long tour ahead of me. Whereas now in my career, I just couldn't be happier. Like I'm, I'm super grateful for having made the decisions that I made. Um, that was a long winded answer, but nonetheless, I, I, I do think that, um, yeah, it was kind of always in the background, but it was like, there are some serious, pretty big check points that really solidified my, uh, my decision to go into teaching. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. No, I, I appreciate the uh, answer. Cause yeah, there's nothing. Um, most people don't experience those, uh, people you, like you said, you experience a, a series of checkpoints that kind of lead you in the direction, you know, very rarely do people like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, hit, hit something and then are like, okay, well, yes, this is it. And there's nothing else that will influence that decision. So yeah, I appreciate you walking through that process, but, um, and kind of, you know, on, on the notion of, of have heart and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, uh, audit the band's history or anything like that, but no it, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is because, and honestly, most hardcore bands that, uh, you know, rise to the level of popularity that have heart did, uh, reckon with this fact of like, the collision of you started a hardcore band. There was no um, idea that all of a sudden you'd be drawing, you know, 800 people in certain places and, uh, you know, kids are buying merch all over the place and you're dealing with money and all of this stuff starts to come into play. Um, you know, did you, I guess pers- you personally, not, you know, you don't have to speak for the rest of the band, obviously, but you know, did you enjoy kind of the business aspects of the band? Um, or was that something that was kind of a, you know, uh, something you had to deal with, uh, or is that something that you tried to really just kind of <laughs> push away? Oh, that, that's, that's a cool question. Um, uh, in short, uh, no, I did not like that. I hated it. I fucking hated it. <laughs> it was the worst. And, sure. um, it was not what I, I, I wanted to do. And, and, and what was always difficult was that, um, Ryan Hudon, uh, like, is my best friend and um you know like business with friends like it 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 sucks like you know you 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 see things one way and they and they see it the other and you disagree and there's 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 money at, at stake and you know i'm talking about decisions in terms of like uh whether or not like like over the kind of like stupid things too like you know whether or not we should like bring this sweatshirt like design on tour because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so-and-so is confident in it being able to sell and so-and-so is not. And, and then like, so there's all these like stupid things that you end up having to make decisions over and, um, like, and, and, and then there's like the, the time constraints that has to get done and, you know, we have to make the decision so we can, we can only like, you know, make this as democratic of a decision as you, as you want. And ultimately someone's got to pull the plug cause there's a time, there's a time limit on it. And, uh, and then, yeah, but like we were really fortunate. Um, so much of, uh, have our success has a lot to do with time. Uh, we were able to tour as heavily as we did because we were just the, the we were just pretty much all on the same 
like where we were in our lives for the most part. We all like me, Kay and Ryan Hudon, um, were all freshmen in, in, in Boston at the same time in college. Uh, and so we were, you know, and then Kay and Ryan, Kay went to Northeastern and, um, it's a five, it's a five year school. And Ryan had, um, uh, he, he changed schools. Uh, he, he, he and he, so he took, he took a, an additional year, but for the most part, like the timing was totally right. Um, so because the timing was right, we were able to tour as much as we did. And because we were able to tour as much as we, we did, uh, we were able to have like a relatively like consistent, um, stream of money coming in. Uh, and then that just makes life a lot easier. Uh, and, we never asked Bridge Nine for a single dollar, actually, mm-hmm. uh, outside, outside of recording. So that was something I was always pretty proud about. We we were a pretty financially well uh, well balanced band for like a group that didn't have like a manager or anything like that. Um, right. And we we never wanted to do that. It, it felt weird because we the band was never. I mean, we broke up because you know, we never intended it to be like this long-term thing. Right. And, but like, and it has a lot to do with one of the reasons why the band stopped. Um, it was just becoming something that you we totally didn't ever want it to be. Um, uh, yeah, the money stuff just totally sucks. I get why bands have managers and whatnot. Um, but I never wanted to, to do a band my whole I've, I've, you know, I hardcore, you know, I love, and I'm happy to, you know, always be, you know, a part of it. But like, um, I never wanted to do a band for my whole life. That was just not on the cards. Have art just sort of, the timing was right and really effective. And I, 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 I suppose it, I mean, I don't like, there was, it was always, everyone was always involved, but, at the end of the day, I, I did a lot of like the, all right, we're going to need X amount of t-shirts on tour. Okay. So like, you know, I didn't wake up in the middle of tour, uh, and, and have to call like our shirt guy and be like, I need you to send, you know, like, you know, 300 shirts to this location. And then, you know, I get a call back like, you know, eight hours later and he's saying like, Oh, the, the, the place is going to be closed. We're going to send to the next place. And then you know, spend most of your time on, on the road just being like, working it's logistics about, like, financial shit yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's like all right so okay so the next step is obviously like you know pay someone to help you like manage this type of stuff and then you know like have arts funny with our hardcore like ethics and you know we're like oh geez having a manager is that kind of like you know like that's that's kind of crazy we had like we only did one tour in the states where someone else booked it uh and that was like totally because like we were doing this, we were just, we just had zero time to actually book it. Right. Um, and then we, it was fine for the most part, but we were like, fuck that. Let's just do it ourselves again. Uh, we, we did like everything ourselves yeah. outside within the state and, and, you know, internationally it was, you know, we're not exactly like, yeah, you gotta, uh, ha- you have to have someone else. Group. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You right. have to, you have to, you know, outsource that. But yeah, it's funny because I'm glad you mentioned the fact like, you know, there was that, that reticence to be able to work with, uh, you know, professional music industry people, uh, you know, from a management perspective or whatever. Cause I do think that, that, uh, that particular era of hardcore, uh, was kind of, you know, the last, 
sort of reserves in regards to that mentality. Cause I know, um, I know myself, like, you know, I mean, I played in a band and, uh, you know, I remember when managers started to, to approach us and like, you know, this was like 2001 or something. And my initial response was always like, well, no, why, that doesn't make any sense because of the, the, that notion of what you're talking about. And then, you know, whatever, fast forward, whatever, you know, five to six years later when you guys are encountering that and there's still that mentality, whereas like now, you know, even, you know, hardcore bands that are, um, you know, of, of a certain level are like, oh, like, yeah, of course we have a manager. Like, it's totally fine. And I'm not saying, right. yeah, and I, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just, um, I do think that that was the last, you know, you guys were definitely the last era, that class of bands was kind of the last from that perspective or it's not a weird idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean like in, you know, like it, it, I, I like that the conversation about that has become a little more nuanced, um, you know, of like, you know, like, you know, whereas like in my, I guess like in, in the late nineties or in the early, the early aughts, uh, it was a little, um, you know, a little more like kind of obtuse and mind, you know, like black and white, like, Oh, sell out. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. But then, but like, you know, and that's like, I'm glad that there's a little more nuance and, you know, sophisticated thought towards it because some bands want to continue. Um, they have a career tour and yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and I completely like, you know, hardcore is so fascinating because it's so new and, it's, it's, it's oddly enough, like continued to like, it's just continued since it started. And that, that's fairly, I think that that's fairly rare. I mean, I like there, like ska, I, I would argue is effectively fucking dead. Like the ska punk scene, like they're like, I, I saw on the internet, there was like, Oh, it's like, you know, the ska punk revival, but it's all like, it, it, it's called the Scott punk revival, but it's all like aqua bats, buck Oh nine. It's like, right. if there was a revival, it would be like, you know, 17, 18 year old kids on their fucking trumpets. And that's not what I'm seeing. Like, and so the point is like hardcore has continued to, you know, be a thing. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, the bands that have like, uh, like, like terror that like the, the lifer bands that have, that have continued. And I don't think that that band, like, you know, the bands that have like me stayed on the road, kind of kept everything going would have ever been able to do that with like a purist DIY, you know, uh, circumstance. And it's not to say that they're like, you know, that terror is like some type of like, fucking like you know major label sellout like you know like oh we have like seven different managers it's just not the case uh i think that they're for what they're doing they're pretty pretty done on a much so on a diy ethic but for the amount of touring that they do it's amazing that they're still fucking touring like totally pretty relentlessly too yep um but um I don't know. So I, I, I get it now, you know, me and, um, my, my buddy, uh, Sam, uh, you know, he, 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 books, a, he books a lot of shows in Boston or not as much as he used to, but I remember him being like, what the fuck? I got these fucking managers, you know, like it, it's still weird though. I, I like, cause for a hardcore band to have a manager and then to have like kind of like strange, like man, like strange, like manager, perceptions of like what the band's worth is. Uh, so that's where I think it 
can kind of become a, a problem because managers are not the band. They're not on the front line seeing the reality of like, you know, what the bands are drawing. So like they'll contact like a promoter like Sam or just like some, you know, some kid being like, yo, uh, you know, can you, can you book this tour on a, on a Wednesday night? And, and, you know, it, even in Boston, and there's like this weird perception that like a hardcore band on a Wednesday night, a slightly big hardcore band on a Wednesday night in Boston is just going to draw enough kids to like meet like a thousand dollar guarantee. And it's like, no, you got no fucking idea what Boston's like on a Wednesday. <clears throat> there's no scene. Like, and, and like, that's the part where like the, the weird, the weird issue of hardcore purist do-it-yourself ethics runs up against like um, the you know realistic need for there being kind of like I guess like major label major label more I guess like kind of corporate like you know logistical actions. But my thinking is like is like if you're a band that is. Um, actually hitting the road actually like you know doing it and that makes sense to have some type of manager and you know slightly large guarantee but if you're just like you know you got you got your first seven inch out or you're like a, you got an LP that's doing slightly well and then you got like Jimbo uh, Jimbo asshole you know hitting up like just regular hardcore kids for, you know, to book a tour on behalf of your a band and just have giving them this crazy guarantee that, that always comes off as like pretty strange when I, when I hear about this. Type yeah. No. Hi, I'm Esther Dean and I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central on NBC. And join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, no, for sure. Well, yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed, I, you know, to echo your sentiments is the idea that, uh, when you are coming at a particular music scene with, um, you know, context for the music industry, but maybe not that particular scene, that's when things get weird. And then you do see the, uh, predatory nature of, um, you know, capitalism, consumerism, all of those things that are wrapped yeah. up within the uh, commodification of, uh, you know, art into uh, a money-making endeavor. And so, yeah, I completely understand, um, you know, that notion. And like you said, it starts to get really, really weird from that perspective. Um, you kind of, uh, on that same tip, but, you know, tangentially related, um, like you mentioned, the band turned into something that, you know, you guys were never uh, kind of prepared for. Something I always find interesting, too, where, um, you know, you being the vocalist for the band clearly are a flashpoint for most people to, you know, come up to you and talk to you about their experience with the lyrics. And, you know, that while that is, a, you know, clearly an amazing thing and one of the most vital parts of punk and hardcore, um, that can get probably pretty uh, draining and exhausting. And especially when, you know, the uh, the notion of being like a career band was never something that was part of have, have Heart's vision in general. You know, how did you kind of deal with that sort of uh, attention where it was like, you know, you became not just, you know, Pat Flynn, but you were like, Oh, Pat from have heart. And then people wanted something from you. Um, was that it? Like, I guess, was that difficult for you to kind of navigate that? Or, you know, did you do your best to try to ignore it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, we can, 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just to be clear, I, I'm always cautious of like you know uh, on on. On, on on this, like in no way, what was it like? You know, uh, like excessive, oh, like oh, like Brad Pitt level yep. fame or totally, totally, like no, that. no, totally. This is a total. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll preamble yeah, it for yeah. you. This is a microcosm. You are you are not famous. Yeah. No one cares. It's cool. But you were <laughs> you were you were you were well known amongst a very small subset of people for a few right. years. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it was. It's like. It's such a like in in <laughs> it, 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 it it would just be like it's frustrating because with that so here's something I don't think I've ever really touched upon uh, about about that is that you know a it's it, it's completely flattering um, if there wasn't a, like a purpose to have heart it was to um, have like real you know inspire real human connection. Um, uh, I mean, that was never written down, but I know that that's what I was seeking when I was 16. Um, you know, like, you know, a real human connection, uh, either on an individual basis or on a communal basis. That was like, that was great. So when kids would express to me some type of, uh, catharsis, uh, from, you know, uh, you know, just reading the lyrics or being at the show or, or, you know, something involved with what we had to, we had created, it was just intensely flattering and it, it, it never that flat, that sense of flattery and, and gratitude never went away at all. Uh, it still doesn't, you know, um, it, it, you know, kids, kids, it's at like a fiddlehead show or a free show. Kids will say some really nice stuff. And, you know, I, I try to let, I, I try to be as sincere as possible and because coming from a place of truth that, uh, it, it really does mean a whole hell of a lot, uh, to hear that, you know, something that, uh, I created with, uh, you know, you know, for the most part for myself, but with a added hope that like someone might find some meaning out of it. Uh, it, 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 it's super flattering because, uh, it reminds me of like the, the nice value of, of like uh, the subculture of punk and, uh, which to me is like those types of conversations. Um, I don't know. It's hard to put to words, but they feel slightly, uh, different. And because there's like no money involved in it, it feels a little more honest and, uh, there's no, like, you know, like I just watched a documentary about like, it's called the American meme. It was on Netflix. And like, uh, Paris Hilton was talking about her relationship with her fans. And I oddly was like, huh, it, it seems like, she, I don't know why I'm talking about Paris Hilton right now, but it seemed like Paris Hilton really cares about her fans. Um, and that's, that's, that's fucking, you know, great. It, it, seemed, it seemed fairly genuine, but it, keyword is seemed like she's also like making billions of dollars off of like, you know, her fans. So like, yeah, no shit. You appreciate them. You know what I mean? Like, so the nice thing about those exchanges even now is that like, it, it feels fairly pure and which, which to me is like the, the nice thing about like the cool thing about punk is that it is relatively, uh, can be keyword can, uh, at odds with like, you know, just mainstream pop cultural practices where, you know, like, you know, there's always this like financial economic, um, factor in there. Whereas in, in punk and hardcore, like 
I, I just would like to very much so highlight the fact that like there's no fucking money in, in there. <laughs> like it, in, you know, so the, the fact that it was flattering and continues to be flattering, uh, you know, when someone says that they, they've made some type of decent real had, you know, come found some new truth in their life because of whatever me and my friends created. It means a whole lot because it's nice and pure. Um, however, <laughs> like the, I guess like kind of like really frustrating part of that is, um, uh, you know, uh, it's a weird microcosm. And so if it, like, you know, so if it, you know, have a couple kids coming coming up to you, and you know, you know, I, I, you got your your close friends, or or just like the 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 trolls on the on the on the message boards who have like a really like they don't understand that like like hardcore is so such a small thing, and there's just such little money involved, and everything, especially for a band, is divided like first five ways amongst the band financially. And then there's all the other fees. So there's like no, um, there's no money there. And, you know, that would be nice to deal if there, if there were, was some type of like, you know, financial benefit that would at least like, you know, help the all like deal and soften the, the blow of like the, the frustrations of like, I just remember during that time period, you know, people like, because you, you, there was some type of like quote unquote stardom or quote unquote celebrity, uh, you just become such a target, uh, to a lot of people and not in like a, Oh, I don't like the record type of way, but in the, you know what, what's a nice way to just completely make fun of this person who seems to be in, um, you know, a, a, a focal point of a lot of people at, at the current moment. And then there's like, this like misinterpretation that like, you know, a, a few kids are, are, you know, are interested in the band on the, in the grand scheme of things. And so therefore there's like, you know, a, there's like, there's, they gotta be making a lot of money. Um, oh Jesus Christ. They must be like swimming in cash. And then, right. and then, and then like B it's like, you know, like I, I'm not like, you know, I remember just being like, I'm not like making these are people who I like will talk to once and then never see again. <laughs> and it's not like I'm coming out of this, like with like these social connections that are going to get me like, you know, in with like, you know, like a really great investor. And I'm just going to come out with like knowing all the great stocks to invest in. Like there's no, like there's, there's no like, um, social, there's no like real, like, like capital, to come out of that outside of like, to me, what is like, you know, emotional capital, <laughs> like, okay, cool. Like, you know, I feel a little more confident in myself and I feel like I'm, you know, uh, engaging with people in, in a way that's a little bit more meaningful than just getting them to like, you know, mosh hard and, and go nuts. Um, so that's always been frustrating is that like, you know, you be, I just remember just, become feeling like I was like, I was just like the, a, a bit of a poster boy for people to just completely, completely like just rip apart. People said some fucking cruel fucking shit about me. And 
just being mean, like, you know, cause I, I wrote, I wrote relatively openly and again, that's the risk you take. And I, and I, I accept that totally. Right. But I just remember thinking like, I bet this is a, like, you know, you know, if there weren't, if the band wasn't so, um, enjoyed by a large, uh, such a, such like a large amount of people at the time, then I don't think I would be, you know, taking all these like hot, like these kind of vicious, uh, cruel shots. Um, sure. Well, it, and, and it, 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 it is to interrupt your train of thought because it's uh, you know, there, there becomes easy targets, especially when you're talking about the insular scene that, you know, celebrates bands, but once they reach a certain level and they feel like that thing obviously is not their quote unquote own anymore, then you start to, yeah. you, people just reach for reasons to not like a band and be like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> they pro- like have heart. Like they probably came home with like, you know, $7,000 a piece. And it's like, uh, like, well, no, we, that $7,000 we had to like split amongst five people. And then, you know, we had to pay like 40,000 to, 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 to like make our merch and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you don't want to, right. Yeah. Right. And like, to, I mean, the reason, you know, you bring up a person like Paris Hilton, it's like, yes, these, you know, these people that are using, uh, their social capital for, you know, actual, uh, revenue and being able to, you know, kick off like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars just by being a quote unquote influencer or whatever. That is a huge difference between the fact that, you know, like you are using your, um, you know, quote unquote pseudo celebrity <laughs> singing for a hardcore band. Like, you know, what, what, what is that? Like, like you said, that's emotional capital. <laughs> that's it's given you, it's given you many things in your life, but not to the point where it's like, you're like, Oh yeah, well, Pat, dude, <laughs> You, your money is no good here, my friend. You will you will never pay for a meal in Boston again. It's like no, that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and that's the other thing is like outside of the little insular world, no one gives a fuck. Like it, it, it's it's worth at best like a oh cool you're in a band. Yep. All right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Oh, that's, I mean, and like you said, it's an interesting conversation point for people. And then, you know, if they do their own research and look up a YouTube video, they're like, Oh wow. Like your band was actually like, you know, big or whatever. Oh, you played around the country. Um, but yeah, that doesn't, it's not, again, it's not going to, uh, you know, get you your your doctorate and PhD and master's degree. It's like, no, those are, you know, that doesn't matter. Yeah. I I would say the only thing that like that, I guess in some type of social capital that came out of that was like, uh, Dave Weinberg, uh, the singer of, um, suicide file. Um, you know, he's local, but I didn't really know him, but towards the end of our career, they were doing some reunions and, uh, you know, we got to talking and he, I remember him saying like, you guys are like the black flag of like, you know, of, of, of your time. You just came back from South Africa and you're, 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 you're like, you know, the first you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. tour in all these places. And I remember, oh, that's really cool. And then, like, we got to talking about education. And he had just left the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he helped me kind of, like, just sort of, like, find the path and uh, you know, really kind of mentoring me in, in my world of education. And um, and he, he wrote my uh, grad school um, recommendation. And, I, I you know, I, it maybe that helped me, like, uh get into some of the schools I got into for grad school or, or, or maybe not, but that at best is like the, the yeah. largest amount of like, you know, like, Oh, I got my foot in the door here. Not at all. Like, it, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they weren't like, Oh my God. Like what Columbia university wasn't like, 
Jesus, one of his recommendations is from the singer of Suicide File. You know, like, <laughs> totally. Uh, hey, you, wow, you guys, you, you guys sold like, you know, 200 banners at a show? That's unbelievable you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like, it, you know, and, and the, the, the most frustrating thing was like, uh, you know, have heart, like, like Brennan Radigan, uh, before he was in Rival Mob, he sang for... Uh, X-Files X, who I worshipped because they were one of the first bands. They were like just, they were a couple of years older than us, me and Ryan Hudon, uh, when we started going to shows, but we thought that they might as well have been like, you know, like wise old sages because they were like three years, <laughs> three years older. Than us, Dude, there's nothing that is funnier than that perception. Like once you see a band when you're, you know, whatever, 15, 16, 17 years old and you're like, oh dude, like, yeah, I remember seeing like the get up kids and thinking Matt Pryor's like, oh dude, this guy's like 23. He is ancient. And I'm like, he's like four yeah. years older than me. It's ridiculous. But yeah, anyways, your, right, your, your, right. your point is <laughs> so spot on. Uh, so like, but he, and there was this line that, um, I think just forever because like Brendan was saying it and because I worshiped him when I was like 14 and he was 16 or something like that. Uh, he like, I took a lot of his lyrics, which by the way, revisiting, they're still fucking insanely witty. And as a high school teacher, like if a kid wrote with, with such wit as he did, I would just be fucking blown away. So it's, (laughs) there's lyrics are still good, but, one of the lyrics that stood out to me to, and, and I think just became a part of like my, my whole ethic system was I can't respect hardcore bands that don't respect hardcore. And I think that like struck such a huge chord. And my point is that like, you know, uh, that, um, that just like that called the shot for, for half heart. You know, we, we wanted to make sure that, all right, so here's the deal. We're going to, we're not going to ever like ask for too much of a guarantee because that that's fucked up. Um, and two, uh, you know, we're going to always try and help out younger bands because, you know, we, uh, we know what it's like to be overlooked by like the seamsters that are old, older than us. And we're going to try and develop communities. We're going to be good to the people as best as we can who, who help us out. And we're going to not ask them for much and we're not going to hog, you know, I remember we're not going to hog the spotlight. We're going to promote other bands and take other younger bands on tour. And we're going to go to places that no one would play. And we're going to break up because we want to like pass the torch to a next generation. Uh, and, and like, you know, we, we were always trying to, you know, respect hardcore. Um, and, uh, and, and that was like something that we were really trying to do the whole way through. And I think that that resonated. I, I could be wrong, but I think that that resonated with people, you know, when we were a band and they're like, Oh, these people are interested in, you know, kind of serving the community and not having the community serve the band type of thing. Right. And I, I think that that helped us, but like, you know, what that also came with is like the people of the community just being like, Oh, fuck these fucking losers. Like for no reason, like, you know, like, and you know, you know, in hindsight, I realized that they were such a small minority, but their voices were so enlarged on like message boards. Um, you know, so yeah, it gets, it will, it gets tiring. There's, there's only so much that you can, you know, take, especially as a young person. Like I don't care. And I mean, even older people, it's like, no one likes, no one likes to be yelled at or fun or persecuted. And especially when you're taking pot shots at something where you're just like, 
dude, I'm just, I'm just playing in a band. And like you said, this isn't some, uh, you know, overarching, uh, careerist thing. It's like, I'm, I just, right. I just want to play some shows, man. That's all I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, that was really the agenda. The agenda was to like, but also like treat, treat this weird thing with, with, with the utmost respect and, and then, so, you know, we'll, we'll catch some shit some, from, from, you know, small minded trolls. Right. But like, and, and, but the, the, you know, with no economic, like incentive, right. You know, value. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. And at some point you're like, you're like, wait a minute, I can't fucking pay rent. Right. Hold on. Like, <laughs> I, I got, I got 70 years left of this whole life thing. And, uh, this is a, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of went off on there, but you know, that, that got old, uh, and you know, we never wanted to be around forever. Um, and you know, I guess that kind of explains that, but like, yeah, man, that was, uh, navigating that was, was surely, surely annoying because it would have been awesome if like, you know, you know, we were pulling like, you know, like, ten thousand dollars every right. show or something like that. Right. Then you're like, yeah, um, yeah, that's fine. You can make fun of me. Right. <laughs> uh, the uh the last thing I want to hit on before I let you go is the fact that um, you know, clearly when you, you stepped away from Have Heart and, you know, you were in the uh the years and I, I've seen you explain this in other interviews where, you know, they were dark times for you as far as like, you know, you experienced a lot of, you know, death and change in the family and you know, you're probably doing a lot of soul searching on your own. Uh, but then, you know, now obviously you have you know a crew you like the fact that you are still you know very very connected to music and playing in you know many many different bands um it, I, I presume the attachment to you know punk and hardcore still exists within you because like there's no way that you can live your life without it um but those years that you were kind of separated from it and you know you were burnt out understandably so from uh, all your experience with with have heart and not in a bad way just in a i've reached my limit um you know, did, was part of that soul searching being like, Oh, I, um, you know, I, I know I want to still create music and I'm, I'm putting all these things together, but like, I need to know, uh, I guess how seriously to take music, uh, you know, like what, what I need to do from that perspective, or was that something that you kind of just figured out as you went along? I think it was kind of something that I figured out as it went along. Cause I, uh, even before have art broke up, I started just this fun, side project band Wolf Whistle that was more like power violence stuff. And I also started this straight edge band called clear to just do more traditional sounds of hardcore that I like. And then I wanted to do like I, one of my all time favorite bands was Swizz and I wanted to do a band that, you know, kind of like could, you know, in an attempt to capture that sound. And, you know, my, my likeness for the more like archers of loaf, uh, indie punk era, era of the nineties came out in, in the, in the form of, of fiddlehead. It was always just side projects. I still very much so see them as side projects. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I think what I did figure out is that like, Oh yeah, I'm not a musician. <laughs> like, uh, I did, it, it's, it's a complete and total, um, creative endeavor. And I guess lately in the past year with, um, I've been playing way more than I ever anticipated. Uh, but I think that's, uh, partly because like my career is allowed, it's kind of stabilized a little bit. I'm done with the grad school part of my life and I can afford to, you know, do some weekend work and like, you know, with, with, with music. But I, I definitely have realized like I'm not 
a musician. Right. <laughs> and and it, like, I, I never wanted to be, but that's not to say that I'm not involved. Like any band that I've done, I'm pretty much involved in, in the creation of the, of the music, like 99% of the time. Wolf Whistle being the exception because Trevor Vaughn just writes everything and I just, I just put weird, weird lyrics onto it. But, um, I love, um, I, re- I really do love the process of, of just really being creative. And I, I suppose I could, I could be creative elsewhere, but it's hardcore and, and, and punk just seems like the key place to be creative in a communal way that is interesting. And, um, I, I just think that that's such a, that's the fascinating thing. And it's also like for young people, but on the whole of it, like I'm 33 now and, um, uh, I, 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 I suppose I'm, I, I think I'm liquidating all my, all my music endeavors at, at the moment. I would like to clear started like 10 years ago and we've had this LP written for like 10 years and we're going to record it and then just have it out just to say, you know, just kind of just to be like put yeah, that, put the bookmark on it. You know, right. You know, we're just going to finally get that out. Maybe play a couple of shows, but you know, uh, sweet Jesus is done. Uh, Wolf Whistle is put out, put out a, a, a new record, and I don't, I don't know what, what would ever happen to that band. But um, I don't really know what, like where Free stands right now. People have people have moved, and that was that band started. That band basically is Half Heart, um, and you know we Free started just because well Half Heart broke up because it felt right, and when we started me, Austin, Ryan Hudon, uh, Kayasui and Sean Costa, like we started hanging out again. We were like, we should just, it was fun playing and it's fun hanging out. Like, let's just do a band. And we were like, do we want this to just be like a new have our record? We we're like, no, nah, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. That's not cool. Yeah, even yeah. though, even though it's like to us, it didn't feel right. And we were kind of just like, uh, you know, like, no, let's not do that. Let's just call it something else. And, you know, go with the purpose that we enjoy each other's company. And despite the fact that it, you know, the five of us make up everyone that was in have heart, um, we were like, it would just be kind of cool just to do something and similar, even similar in sound, but like, we just want to do it fun because it feels right. But people have moved and the, and the, the rightness of feeling is, I don't know, kind of drifting just because we're all getting older. And, uh, you know, I, I would, I don't really know where Fiddlehead stands. Uh, you know, we all, we all want to write another record and, but that band, that's another band that has, I've never had any expectations for. So like, you know, Al Henry is, Alex Henry is a musician. Uh, and, but in, in my respect, I think that my experience is just sort of like, I'm not a musician. I'm just someone who really likes to be, uh, creative within a, within a community. And, but the thing about hardcore that makes me want to go like, I got to get the fuck out is that at the end of the day, like, you know, I really truly believe that hardcore and punk started out as a, as a, as a youth movement in a country that certainly in the 1970s and the eighties did not give a fuck about young people. And I would argue that, you know, the country still ultimately does not give a shit about young people. And to me, punk was a response to that, like, complete negligence to its youth and uh something is troubling when you know 
you know, the vast majority of not, not just kids going to shows, but bands playing are in their like, you know, late twenties plus. And I worry that that's something that's like the result of people not reading the room the right way and not like, you know, creating enough space for young people. And if it all becomes like this kind of like cool, like every now and then let's, uh, get together for nostalgic purposes and like I can't see something more unappealing for young people uh, which to me kind of explains the gravitation of numbers of kids at punk and hardcore shows to things like um, you know, like the, the SoundCloud scene and, the, and man I'm old I don't even know what the fuck you want to call <laughs> right. the scene that like Ghost Main is a part of but yeah. uh, you know there's a lot of young people there and uh, and I, I think that punk and hardcore scene could do itself some favors from, you know, reflecting and being like, you know, what are the things that we can do to get m- more and more like actually actual young people, like not, not 18 and 19 year olds, but like, you know, 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 year old kids who in my observation is, you know, Late late middle school, early high school. That that's a really developmentally ta- like terrible time, and you need a place to find some meaning. And if there were more like local halls that you know were encouraging of the young people to be creative and to get together and to create their own community, uh, which is what I had coming out of middle school and those first years of high school, I think that like everyone would be doing themselves uh, a favor. Um, yeah, well, you, yeah, that, you have, yeah, you have to be yeah. able to um, examine it, especially if you care about the thing. Like, yeah, you, you definitely, you know, I'm sure you had a similar experience in, you know, whatever, watching the movie American Hardcore. Uh, you know, it, great documentation of that particular scene, and then you know, at the very end, where it's like you have, uh, you know, people who are just like, oh yeah, well, basically this style of music like died in 1986, and then like you know, we're watching this in you know 2008 or whatever, and we're like, uh, no, like not even remotely close, but like you definitely right, right. But to your point, you definitely need the idea of uh, being able to you know foster not only the spaces but the enthusiasm and how people can uh, direct that enthusiasm towards something like you said, you know, you're putting on shows or, you know, doing bands and finding that, uh, that fertile ground in which you can be like, Oh yeah, like I can do my own thing. Um, but I think, you know, to your point with, you know, people that are experiencing, um, you know, the creative burst of energy, uh, with, you know, SoundCloud rap and everything that, you know, it's like a bunch of punk and hardcore kids are creating that stuff. Um, but I think, I think it's just because (laughs) the fact it's so, uh, you know, it's so insular and you can do so much by yourself as opposed to sitting in a room with people and like scheduling that and all that other stuff. So yeah, yeah it'll, it'll that, be interesting. That's, that's a part that, that kind of concerns me about that, that world of, of new music. And I think it's great for the energy, but like it, it's, it's driven by a lot of people and their laptop. And there's something to be said about young people developing the skills to co- coordinate and to communicate to each other. And in the new digital age that we're in, like I, I worry that like, you know, we're starting to really celebrate like personal endeavors and that, you know, like, I don't know, like interact, like social interaction, real social interaction, not like commenting on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, but like th- those like real human interactions face to face, they like they can, they're hard to do, but which to me makes all like 
you know, like the, the punk and hardcore that's, that's been going since the late seventies. Uh, so special and unique and, and, and it's definitely like a threatening thing as an adult in like pop, in like pop culture to see like young people, like with enough skills to coordinate, like, like a whole fucking record and, and a, and an event where like three or 400 people come to like, that's like so threatening. And I don't know how threatening, you know, yelling on stage with a laptop is, uh, you know, cause you know, at the end of the day, it's just, I don't, I, I don't want to say it to you because I, I'm super uninformed, but right. I, I, I truly believe that like, you know, there's something to be said about like four or five kids, you know, coordinate. Yeah. Who aren't it, expected. It, it, it's true. Cause you don't, you really don't think of it when you are doing all of those things that it takes to get, you know, a band going like, you know, with your friends and uh, you're, you're developing all these, you know, quote unquote life skills that adults would call it. And you don't even know, like, you know, booking shows and coordination and planning and all that stuff. And yeah, I totally, I agree. There definitely is that, um, you know, not to sound like old dusty dudes on a, (laughs) on a porch or whatever, but there is that element that, you know, and granted, yes, you could argue that there, those skills can be developed in a more solitary fashion where you're not collaborating with other people to create that art. But you do need that balance. It can't, it can't just be your own singular vision all the time. Like they're, yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. And, and like the, the, the problem with I, my personal view, as I see it with America is, is it's like weird belief in the power of rugged individualism. I like, I, I just don't think that like, that's a helpful concept. It's individuality matters and it has to, and, and the importance of the determination to just get things done on your own has to matter too. But I think that it has to like matter simultaneously with the importance of like community building. And like, to me, like punk and, and hardcore in the way we've seen it, it's just like a true example of that. Uh, that's countercultural force, uh, a, to, to the United States that had prides itself on being like, you know, like rugged individuals, this bullshit lie that was sold to us in the, you know, last two centuries. Um, yeah. And, and I, so that like, not, and I don't, I, I actually don't think it's too like, you know, old men on the porch type of thing. I think it's like, I think the ground is completely fair for people our age to say like, Cause we're not saying like, Oh, it was better back then. Uh, true. There, there's just a, there's a, a factual objective observation that like music, uh, that young people are gravitating towards is, is, is very much so, uh, the product of one single person and that those coordination skills are just observably. And I, I have I don't, I don't treat this like, I'm not seeing this like from too far of a distance because I've looked into the, that world. Cause I'm just so curious and fascinated with it. But, uh, there, there is a lot of like, you know, it, it seems like it's, it, it's the work of one person kind of in their bedroom, which don't get me wrong. You're being creative, but, uh, again, I just keep coming back to this idea of like, you know, communal creative endeavors uh, amongst young people. Yeah. I don't know. No, no, I, I totally understand. Cause yeah, it definitely, there's a difference between, um, you know, criticizing, and pointing out the things that can be improved on just based off experience versus, Oh, it's never going to be the same. And it's like, 
you know, like you said, the old, you know, the, the old guy on the porch criticizing. It's like, yeah, there, yeah, there yeah. can be complaints and there can be, um, you know, a, a, a discontent towards the thing, but that doesn't mean that, uh, yeah, that you can't contribute something positive out of that, you know, like you need to, you need right. to, you can criticize, but you also should back it up in some capacity and be like, oh yes, I think this is why it needs to be this way. And so here's, here's what I would do or whatever. So. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to be proactive at, at like, you know, as someone who is an actual older guy in this subcultural scene that I want to be really focused in, on, on youth culture, like what I really hope to do within sometime in the next five years is to really just be done with, you know, being on stage and, and, and really take a role, an active uh, role behind behind the scenes off the stage and in creating like uh and just putting on shows or helping young people have like consistent venue to go to that that just doesn't that to me is like the like the science of building a scene a single venue that people young people can go to and feel like they can uh stand on on the stage there and be creative and and communities build out of that and like that that's really you know, where I want to be in the next five years is, uh, you know, doing my best to help kind of, uh, coordinate. Um, that makes sense. Well, Hey dude, I got, you know, I, got it, I got a perfect idea for you. You can just manage bands. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, that's a, yeah. I'll just be, you know, I'm going to be a manager. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just, it seems like a perfect fit, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm actually, uh, pulling up to me and, uh, Sammy triple B's favorite, uh, restaurant. I know. I, 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 that was the perfect button on it. I was, uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> I, I knew I was going to let you go right there. Yes, sir. Bob, that was Pat. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed that chat and hopefully I'll be sounding a little bit more, more normal next week when I'm, uh, when I'm back on the mic. Because we have a great chat with Lex Marshall from Daughters, who is, uh, a, just an incredible front man and their newest LP just blew my mind in ways that, uh, I wasn't anticipating because, uh, you know, frankly, I didn't really give it the time of day until, uh, our, our friend of the show, Jeremy Bolin was like, dude, it's my favorite record of the year. Just skip song one. And then once I did that, I'm like, oh my gosh, this record makes so much sense to me. So I had him on the show and it was spectacular. So that's what we got. And, uh, until then, please be safe. Everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and -and up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.